Let's pray. Lord, our lives are yours. We thank you for the beauty of this day. I pray may it be in our hearts as well as around us in the creation. And now, Lord, I'm praying may this time in your word be such as to recalibrate our hearts to true north. We love you. We want to walk with you. We're living in a society going a different direction. May we be salt and light, I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'm in the fourth of a series of sermons on education, page 57. And if you have your bulletins, I'd like for you to take it out. I'd like to say it together. I encourage you to memorize it and to teach it to your children. I'm very encouraged to see our church school teachers seeking to make this a centerpiece of character development for our kids. And if ever they needed what this quotation embodies, it is now. Education, page 57, let's say it together. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Amen. This morning I have before you my thwart bag, which is where I put all of my important things while I'm canoeing. And as I've enjoyed this for the last 40 plus years in the bag for not quite that long, I am retrieving from it this morning a compass. Now, I've talked with you about a compass before, but this morning I want to examine this concept of reverse polarity. You may not know this, but there's two primary problems that develop in a compass. One is elevation brings air bubbles into the compass. And if you have a liquid-filled compass, once you get it into a higher altitude, when you bring it down, the air bubbles may not dissipate. Your compass is no longer any good because that compass is corrupted by the free wheeling uh, that the air creates. Now, the other problem with the compass is that compasses can become reverse polarized, which is much more common. And I... uh, when I got my compass out yesterday, I've, I've hauled this compass around the body, boundary waters for over three decades. And wouldn't you know it, when I go to get my compass last night, I want to thank my wife for helping me to find my thwart bag. My compass was broken. No kidding. I mean, this is the metaphor of the day, okay? And I'm going to explain it to you. Jeremiah had a broken vessel. Jeremiah talks about broken cisterns. Jeremiah, in dealing with the false prophets, dealt with a broken yoke. But I'm here to tell you today, if there's a metaphor for modern society, this is it. Take your Bibles and open them up to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. It is the broken compass. Isaiah chapter 5, a famous verse that you've heard reference to before, but I want you to read it. I want you to put your own eyes on it. Isaiah chapter 5 looking at verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. So what was wrong with my faithful, trusty compass? Well, at least two things. Number one, 
Uh, the end of the pointer that is red, which should point north, was delaminating. So instead of one pointer, so I now have two. And then the little screw that holds it to its post had come off. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to try to fix this. So I got out a couple kitchen knives, and I tried to pry up the face. And in the, in the midst of that, I broke it. I mean, I broke it to where it's really broken. I mean, there's no more alcohol in here. I mean, this is junk. Then I did something worse. I didn't tell this to the first service. I'll just tell you. Then I got the compass out on my new iPhone. I just got this last week, the phone. And I thought, I wonder if it's magnetic. And I took my magnet, which is in my pocket right here. Well, it was. Yeah, it still is. Let's see if I can find it. It's disappeared. I got my magnet out, and I thought, I'm going to see if my iPhone compass is magnetic. Now, this is a little computer in my pocket, a brand-new computer. Come on. I've got a hole in my pocket. It disappeared into the bottom of my suit. Time for a new suit. So I got my, my magnet out because you can fix a broken compass. Good news, friends. You can fix a broken compass. But I thought to myself, how is this compass magnetic? So here's this little $800 phone, and I'm getting this compass out on the app, and I'm not going to repeat it here because I feel like the Lord might have delivered me. And I started putting this magnet all around my phone. And then afterwards I thought, that was dumb. <laughs> now, the good news is I discovered that, you know, some of you have uh, phone holders in your car, and they have magnets on them. And some of you have credit card holders on the backside of your phone case, and they have little magnetic um, clips on them. So I wasn't quite as dumb as I thought I was when I was all done. Uh, the truth of the matter is this compass in your iPhone does work on the basic uh, magnetic principles. It's not quite the same as a regular compass. You can study that out and see how it works. Now, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If you have a broken compass, I told first service I'd tell them how to fix it, but I didn't. If you have a broken compass, this is what you do. You find a certain type of magnet, which I'm not sure if this is it. You discover which the south end of the magnet is. Now, magnets, you know, have a north and a south end. You mark the south end, which I've done right there. And you bring it to the compass. You wait now because my compass is broken. Even with this magnet right here, I can't even get it to point north. Okay, there. I got it to at least point to the south end of this magnet. You tape it and you leave it taped to the compass for a half hour. And you can take a compass, which can be an expensive device, and you can recalibrate it to true north. Now, I'm here this morning speaking to you, my brothers and sisters, as well as to a larger audience online, and I'm suggesting to you that we are living in a society that has a serious problem of reverse polarity where it's calling evil good and good evil. Did you see the news this week? Did you see that the governor of Iowa determined that she would sign a law 
that said transgender women cannot participate in athletics at the competitive level. Yes, Kim Reynolds signed a law banning transgender women and girls from participating in team sports. And of course, depending on who you read it by, it's a little bit biased. I mean, I'm reading from CNN here, and they say, in effect, she banned a law that was consistent with their gender. And of course, CNN, being a left-leaning news machine, considers that you choose your, your gender. Of course, other people believe that gender is chosen for you by genetic processes and your parents. And uh, I learned that Iowa was number 11. Idaho was the first to ban transgender girls from participating. Interestingly enough, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, which if you're my age, you would have known in 1976, which was a big year for American history. It was also the year that Caitlyn, who was then Bruce, was on the front of every Wheaties box because he was the decathlon winner in the United States uh, representation in the Olympics. But interestingly enough, Caitlin, on May 2 in 2021 at a LA rally in Los Angeles where she, formerly he, was making a bid to become the governor of the state, stated that trans women have advantages that make it unfair. As a matter of fact, those that are against trans women participating believe that they have an advantage gained in puberty that hormone treatment does not uh, destroy. Now, I have a little test for you. Since you now know there's 11 states that have banned transgender women participating in competitive sports and schools, I want you to do a little mental calculation. I want to ask yourself, of those 11 states that have banned transgender females from participating in competitive sports, don't call it out, don't raise your hand, I just want this to be in your mind, how many of those 11 states are Republican? Okay. Are you thinking? So the question I have for you now is, because those are Republican states that have done this, and the Democratic states have not, is this now a taboo topic for the Bible or the church or the people of God? Come on, do a little thinking here, okay? Could we be deep people, not shallow people who like to throw around, oh, well, that's political speech. And my guess is we could probably find the same uh, correlation on issues relative to homosexuality, and if we wanted to press a little bit farther, do these moral issues become off-subject matter for the people of God because the world polarizes itself on, along political lines? I hardly think so. There is a serious case of reverse polarity going on in our society right now, and it is exceptionally troubling. Yes, Jeremiah said, speaking for God, my people have committed two evils. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living waters, to carve out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns. But here is an appeal from the word of God. This is what the Lord says, chapter 616 of the same prophet. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find a resting place for your souls. But they said... We will not walk in it. Now, we've recently come through a colossal dividing point in society. And one side says you can't choose for yourself, you can't talk about it, you can't work if you don't cooperate, and you can't sue if you have an adverse event. 
That's one side of a big divide we've just come through over the last two years. The other side says you should be able to choose. You should be able to talk about it. You should be able to keep your job. And if something goes wrong, society should support you. And I'd suggest to you today that without getting too enmeshed into too many more details, the ordinary fifth grader could probably tell you which side appears to be on the right side of the philosophical divide. But if our polarity is reversed and there is no longer freedom of thought and expression, examination of ideas and liberty of conscience, we might find ourselves needing a fix to our liquid-filled north-pointing devices. This morning, I want to remind you, as someone wrote to me recently this week, they said, quoting another preacher from South Carolina, that there was a ministry of truth that was being set up in our government. Now, you say to yourself, ministry of truth, ministry of truth. Great Britain had a ministry of information during World War II. But where does the term ministry of truth come from? Well, it comes from this rather dystopian book. And you know, dystopian is a word that means imaginary where everything's always bad and there's no good future. So this dystopian book called 1984, where Winston, the protagonist, works for the ministry of truth. And in the ministry of truth, he is using the media and the other components of his role to make sure everybody knows what they should think. And occasionally, Winston will write down in his book what he thinks, but that's against the law. And so he's got to keep his book very private. Now, along the way, he meets a young woman by the name of Julia. And he and Julia develop a relationship in the midst of that relationship, Winston becomes aware of an individual by the name of O'Brien. And he thinks that O'Brien, even though he's a member of the inner party, this is from 1984, yes, Orwellian is the term you're used to hearing. George Orwell wrote the book. And he hears that O'Brien in the inner party might be a member of the Brotherhood, which is a phrase for the free thinkers that aren't quite willing to go along with everything. Well, in the process of reflecting on this with Julia, they decide that they'll go meet O'Brien. O'Brien gives them a book. And in the process, Julia and Winston tell O'Brien how they met and where their secret place is. O'Brien leaves them under the idea that he is a member of the Brotherhood, but the next time they meet at their secret place, they're captured. And then they're taken to the Ministry of Love, where they're tortured until they'll obey. Doesn't sound like a really wonderful experience, does it? And perhaps that's why so many people have talked about this, but is it possible that in this cultural experience we have a serious case of reverse polarity where good is bad and bad is good, where light is dark and dark is light? I leave it for you to decide. But if we're living in that time, it might be important for us to understand it's time for the greatest one of the world to recalibrate and prepare. And it's important that if you're going to be that kind of person and you'd rather not trade in your eternal inheritance on earthly security, that you understand that you can't be bought or sold. You belong to Jesus Christ, and your faithfulness is to Him first. Number two, you're true and honest in your inmost person. That means you've got a conscience that's working. Pressed by the Holy Spirit, you have strength to do what's right and the ability to confess when you've done wrong. Then you are unafraid to call sin by its right name, which is the big difference between functional and dysfunctional, saved and lost. And then lastly, we come to today, which is true to duty 
as the needle to the pole. Oh, the compass. That's how we bring this all together. Listen, friends, we're living in an immoral age. There is a, ga- a bad case of reverse polarity, and your only real duty is to fulfill yourself. Make a lot of money, great, get a lot of opportunities. But bothered by duty, guilted by the preacher or the teacher or the parent, oh, this is the colossal sin of the 21st century postmoderns. Yes, indeed, the only duty you're to have is to take care of yourself, to enjoy yourself to make the most of life's opportunity. Get that bucket list done. I was so pleased once when one of our uh, seminary professors said to me, we need to quit asking the kids what it is that they really want to do with all their dreams and their ambitions and what makes their heart sing. Not that they're, they're in contradistinction to God's will, but I'm adding a little bit to what he said, but we need to remind them that When we delight in the Lord, he gives them the desires of their heart. Listen, I didn't want to be a preacher, and I ran from it for a long time. And some people listening to me here today don't want to be preachers, and they're running too, but they're called to it. And there's some called to be teachers, where you don't make a lot of money, and you got to put up with the dysfunctional parents, which is even worse than putting up with the dysfunctional kids. I was one of those kids. And my mother was probably one of those parents in some measure. The truth of the matter is, we have no moral obligations except to ourselves in this age, so we have no duties. Except God doesn't look at it that way. Moral obligation, another phrase for the word duty. This morning I want to show you from the life of one of the most dutiful men in the scriptures, what it looks like in three different relationships, really two different relationships in three different settings. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to the book of 1 Samuel. I want to look at the life of Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 14, moral obligation in an immoral world. You need to remember about Jonathan that his heart was bound up with David's heart because like attracts like. Jonathan was a man after God's own heart in the similar way that David was. As a matter of fact, Jonathan's fidelity to God and his sense that his cause should not be dishonored reverberated in his own heart and mind even before David showed up at the valley of Elah to fight Goliath. You remember, don't you? Saul has now no inner confidence from God, and that means no courage. And it means that people are deserting him, and they're hiding in the holes and the caves. But there is a young man born of Saul, cultivated in Saul's household, who appears to be true in the midst of Saul's perfidy or uncommittedness. Jonathan looks at his armor bearer, and he, in effect, says, this isn't right. Here we are with the living God on our side, but we're hiding out like we need to be afraid, but they occupy all the high spots and, of course, very few swords because all the blacksmiths were corresponded to the work of the Philistines. But Jonathan says to his armor bearer, I think we should do something about this. Now, I want to ask you, is there anybody that's bothered by the fact that God's church appears to be on hard times? Is there anybody that's terribly grieved by the fact that churches and schools are living on a very thin bubble, barely existing. 
Is there anybody bothered by the fact that our young people tend to walk out the door without any real sense of obligation to God? Well, it needs to bother us enough to where we ourselves embrace our duties because it's awfully difficult for a parent to embrace moral obligation on a child when moral obligation is not shouldered on their own lives and lifestyles. You see, Jonathan was a man after God's own heart. His first duty was to God. And when his father was afraid and sitting under the fig tree with his 600 men, Jonathan understood something's going to have to change. So he leaves camp without his father knowing. I want you to think about this. Sometimes God's got to go around one generation to do his work, and hopefully then to win the generation, he had to go around. That's what's happening in my own life. You see, friends... My mother walked away from God, but she put me in this church school. My life was touched by God, and now my mother's heart is opening to God. God is not caught off guard. Don't be discouraged. The truth of the matter is, is that Jonathan says to his armor bearer, okay, this is how we're going to do it. If they call us to come up, we're going. If they say, wait here, we won't. Let's see if God will do something for us. And the armor bearer says, I'm with you. You see, like attracts like. And on that morning when Jonathan called out and they said, oh, they're coming out of their caves and their hiding places, they said, come up here and we'll teach you something. And Jonathan looked at his armor bearer with a sparkle in his eyes and he said, okay, we prayed, let's go. And up the side of the cliff they go in a place they didn't think anybody could climb. And when they came out on the top, God got in the game. And it sounded like the thundering hooves of, of uh, horses coming in behind them and the stomp of soldiers and pretty soon those Philistines were fighting each other. And everybody with Saul said, what's going on over there? And Saul calls for the ark and he calls for the priest and pretty soon he makes a rash oath and he senses he's not in the game, somebody else and his son has been notedly absent and he says, all right, we better get in the game. And he says, nobody should eat today until I'm avenged of my enemies. It's a very egocentric king that's on the throne. It's about him. It's about him being avenged of his enemies, not God. They join in the day. The problem is the victory is a long-achieved one. And partway through the day, Jonathan goes into the woods, and he sees honey all over the place. Now, listen. For those of you who raise bees, you know that honey is in hives or, or it's in hollow trees and other places like that. Spirit of Prophecy tells us in the youth instructor from December 1 of 1898 that God spread this honey all over the floor of the forest to sustain his people. So you've got a king that is saying, don't eat anything all day long. And you've got a Lord that's saying, but I've prepared a banquet for you. And Jonathan takes his staff not knowing what his father said and he dips it in the honey and he pulls it to his mouth and his mouth brightens, his face brightens. Interestingly, someone's there who knew what his dad had said, verse 29. Then one of the people said, 1 Samuel 14, your father strictly put the people under oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were very weary. And I want you to see what Jonathan's response is. Then Jonathan said, my father has trouble the land. 
See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. And what's worse than that, when the sun finally went down, they slaughter the spoil and eat the meat with the blood in it, thus violating the simplest of laws understood by the Hebrews. Now I want you to see from duty number one, duty cycle number one, the moral obligation that God had to, that Jonathan had to God was greater than the moral obligation that Jonathan had to his father. And if one was to come before the other, it wasn't a tough decision for him. And more than that, when the father, who is the king, he is the God-ordained authority figure in this story, God-ordained by the prophet Samuel, God-ordained by the anointing oil, God-ordained by God, but he still is wrong sometimes. And he's wrong. And he stops God from the glory that would have come from a mighty victory if they would have been allowed to eat. But because he's so into himself and unable to recognize that he should have been out there. I mean, this is battle number one where Saul should have been leading the way. When David fights Goliath, that's battle number two. How many battles like this do you have to have before you realize something's wrong inside of you? You see, friends, Loyalty to God and duty to God trumps all other loyalty. And if you are basing your life on the Word of God, the idea that you are to honor your father and mother before you honor the Lord can't cut the mustard with Jesus who would say, anyone who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Sober, sober, sober. But I'm here to assure you today, if you want to be a woman or a man or a child with courage on the inside, God has to be king. He has to be sitting on his throne, and he's got to be first. Otherwise, you'll have the cowardice that was in the heart of the king. God's law and God's person and God's revealed will in your life is the first duty of every human being. Following the Lord... And Jonathan is not afraid to suggest that there's a problem here. All of the people who follow mindlessly, which I hope no one here does, but all of the people who follow mindlessly need to hear somebody in authority speak up and say, you know what, that is wrong. Now you can be sure Saul had his loyal troop. We see it throughout the book. When Doag is there, when David has appeared at the city of Nob and gotten the sword of, of Goliath, Saul's got his favorite troop. When David's hiding among the Ziphites, the Bible tells us two times the Ziphites betrayed David. No, Saul's got his people. And I can assure you that Saul's people made David a villain and Saul a hero. But the Bible makes David the hero and Saul the villain. Do you really think that the ministry of truth that's being erected in our society right now, the reverse polarity, do you really think the competing narratives that were in the Garden of Eden are going away before Jesus appears in the clouds? You better think again. It's going to require us to be men and women of prayer because it isn't going to be intellectual sophistry. It isn't going to be the power of a good education that's going to make you a discerner of truth because the truth about me, which is mine to discover with Jesus and, of course, with those in my orbit, that truth is discovered primarily in readiness of heart to see things I wasn't ready to see before. And Saul had decided he wasn't going to be listening to anything that came too terribly critical 
about his position or his place. But royal authority would have been a great line upon which to establish. And prophetic anointing would have been a great line upon which to establish the legitimacy of Saul's credibility, except it was vacant. It was hollow. So if you think in an age of reverse polarity that you're going to get out of being the kind of person that this phrase we've been looking at here and that the lifestyle of Jonathan presents, you're going to have to think again because God is actually placing in the heart of his followers the love that constitutes courage that makes one take risk. And without that kind of love, you'll be lost because the human heart is bent on self-interest and self-preservation. And that's why the cowardly are the first on the list in Revelation 21 who aren't in the kingdom. Now let's go to the next situation of duty. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 20, again looking at the life of Jonathan. At this point in time, as I've mentioned in previous messages, Saul has thrown a spear at David once, a spear at David twice in chapters 18 and 19, and he will now throw a spear at his own son in chapter 20. I'm not going to take the time to look at that, but I want you to understand that it's the feast of the new moon, and David is being invited back into the king's palace, but Jonathan and he agree on a test. And this is what the test will be. David will not be sitting in his place at the table on day number one, and David will not be sitting in his place at the table on day number two, and David may not sit there, period, but they're banking that Saul is going to ask about him. And that's exactly what happens. Now, there's a prearranged agreement between David and Jonathan. David will ask permission to go to Bethlehem. And if Saul is angered at the absence of David as it relates to their friendship, that is, David and Jonathan's, then they'll know it's not safe to bring David back inside the palace. So day number one goes by, Saul notices but says nothing. Day number two goes by, and this time Saul says something. And Jonathan says, I gave him permission to go to, to Bethlehem. And Saul's anger cannot be contained. If you have your Bibles there, looking at chapter 20, and I want you to notice in verse 2 an important part for my third point, which I'm not there yet, but I want you to notice 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 2. It says, he said to him, far from, far from it, you shall not die. This is Jonathan talking to David, but this is the point I want to make. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small, without disclosing it to me. So he's assuring David that he's on the inside track. Now David says, well, he knows how you feel about me, and he may not tell you everything. But Jonathan affirms that he will be the inside understanding. Go down, if you would, to verse 13 of the same chapter. If it please my father to do you harm... May the Lord do so to Jonathan and more so also if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Now verse 14 is probably one of the most important verses we're going to look at today. Jonathan is talking to David. You have to remember that in chapter 17, after David slew Goliath, Jonathan took off his royal robe. He handed David his sword. He gave David his armor. He, in effect, said, you're going to be the next king. You need to understand that Jonathan's love for truth allowed him to be humble enough to step out of God's way. You need to understand that Jonathan was all right 
being David's right-hand man, not David being his right-hand man. I mean, we're talking about a great person here. And we need to reflect on these great men and women much more often. But David and Jonathan are in this conversation, and I want you to see what verse 14 says, because a few spears have been thrown. It says, if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? He's promised to David that he'd be willing to die for David, and in effect he's saying, when things get turned around, because, you know, competing dynasties had this nasty little habit of wiping out all the future competitors. If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I might die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when my Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Enemies of David? Who would be on the top of that list? Jonathan gets it. And he knows he may not be alive to see the day. You talk about a touching moment. Farther down in the chapter, verse 27, it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go since our family has sacrificed in the city and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I've found favor in your sight, please let me get away and I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Verse 30, then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you're choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And for a man that could be bought or sold, that's all that needed to be said. You're giving away the kingdom. But Jonathan answered Saul, verse 32, and he said to him, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Now listen, folks, if I didn't run into it everywhere, I wouldn't bring it up as often as I do. But I'm going to tell you what, evil thinking and wrong deciding make weak positions, and you have to go to the destruction of the opposition in order to get your way. And while we don't throw literal spears at each other today, we've become the masters of the simplest art of debate, which is ad hominem attack. You don't like what Jonathan says? In a fit of insane anger, kill your firstborn son. This is what evil does. It twists and it turns, and it destroys the opposing voice so that there is no echo chamber in the precincts of the narrative. Listen, friends, the precincts of the narrative are sacred and they are determined by the ministry of truth. And the greatest way for you to see darkness operating since we're living in an age of reverse polarity is to see if intellectual objectivity exists. I'm here to tell you there are people outside of the family of God who are more true to truth than some on the inside. 
What a sober thing. But didn't Jesus say that the citizens of Gomorrah would rise up in judgment? Sodom, I think he said. Woe on you, Chorazin. Woe on you, Bethsaida. For the citizens of Sodom will rise up in the judgment. If you think the gospel reads like a a fairy tale for a four-year-old, you better go back and read it again as an adult because Jesus dealt with the most difficult battles around narrative and messaging that the great controversy has ever seen, and they couldn't stand him. And they sought to do the same thing, only they were working in subterfuge. It wasn't a spear they threw literally at Jesus. No, but they did said the temple guards in John chapter 7, and they came back and they said, no man talks like this man. Those temple guards were more true than Caiaphas and Annas who commissioned them to silence Christ, and they could not. When you can no longer engage in the dialogue of intellectual objectivity, you have trended into the darkness whether you make a profession of Christ or not. And the spear that attempted to pin David to the wall was now used to pin Jonathan. What a serious moment. But this isn't the end. Notice in verse 41, in their encounter, after they'd gone out, Jonathan's gone out to the field. I just want you to see the tenderness. When the lad was gone, that's the arrow gatherer, because you remember Jonathan said, this is my sign. I'll shoot past the rock you're behind if we're going to talk, and I'll shoot short of it if we shouldn't be seen with each other. Well, turned out that there was going to be an encounter. When the lad was gone, David arose from the south side, and he fell on his face to the ground. He bowed three times, and they kissed each other, and they wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, go in safety inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he arose, and he departed while Jonathan went into the city. You ever felt like you have a cloud hanging over your head? Now listen. There are some perverted postmodernists which have to rewrite the Bible according to their wills, and they suggest that there's an immoral relationship between these two men. You want to talk reverse polarity? How is it that the world gets to define what love is now? What does the world know about love? But we've been sitting on our haunches as a church for the last several decades enjoying the party. Wealth and ease and opportunity, great education. And of course, our kids have not lost out on the fact that they're better educated than any generation and they make more money. And who are you to tell them what to do? Who are you to lay moral obligation on them? Who are you to talk about duty? You're just part of the wrong side of the narrative. You're old school, which is why Jeremiah 6.16 says, stand in the ancient paths and ask, ask for the old ways. There's nothing new under the sun, friends. This isn't the first postmodern generation we're dealing with, but it will be the last. Yes, David wept. And Jonathan wept. And I want you to see Jonathan walking back into the evil precincts of his palace home, and I want you to see David disappearing into the woods knowing that's the last time they'll see each other alive. 
So let's go to the third duty. You see, the first duty was to God. The second duty was to his father. But he had a duty that superseded that because the truth was the truth, and that gave him an obligation to David. He risked his life for David. Do you have a friend you'd risk your life for? Do you have a friend you'd risk your career for? Do you have a friend you'd risk anything for? Or are friends just temporary things that you can flush down the toilet or set on a shelf? Are there any bonds in this age that are actually deeper than self-interest? Can you walk away from that marriage and think, oh, it's okay? Can you leave those kids orphans without a father? Yeah, I want to tell you, duty is exceptionally inconvenient. It's a little galling. But duty is what takes you through the cycles of your personal self-focused insanity at times. The last chapter. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 28. The end is almost here. They've gathered for a final battle with the Philistines. For all they know, David is amongst the Philistines. And he was. Except the Philistine generals got wise and they said, he's not coming. Kick him out. But Saul and Jonathan don't know that. And so they come to Mount Gilboa, but you need to know what happened the night before. You know, we read back there in 1 Samuel 20 that Saul did nothing without his son knowing it. Now, I'm sure there were a few things. But you know, when you're kind of high up in the organization, you're not totally ignorant to what's going on, even if you have to get it from somebody in a roundabout way. And that night when the sun went down, Saul went down to Ender and he found a witch. Now I want you to say, I want you to think as if you're Jonathan for a minute. Saul goes down to see a witch, a spiritist. And you're Jonathan, not far from Mount Gilboa, and you can see the campfires and smell the smoke of the enemy. I want you to be Jonathan for a few minutes and realize that in this case, your dad, who shouldn't be going to the witch, should be fighting the enemies of the Lord. And since your dad is about to fight the enemies of the Lord, you're going to stand by his side even though he's gone to the dark side to find inspiration. I want you to see duty leading Jonathan to the top of Mount Gilboa where he'll hear the arrows swishing through the air and the screams of his fellow soldiers as they're falling before the fearful presence of the Philistines. You think Jonathan doesn't know? I want you to be there on Mount Gilboa. Look at chapter 31. It says, now the Philistines were fighting, verse 1, against Israel. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. Maybe there's something there. Maybe the sons are defending the father, the father who sold his soul to the devil. I want you to see Jonathan fighting to the very end to preserve his father, who does live longer than they do. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. And Saul is still alive.
I want you to see what duty does. Because 3,500 years later, we're still talking about this man. About seven years ago, I did a funeral for a man named Phil Reese. There's a significant portion of this building right over here that bears the name and honor of his wife. When Phil was 14 years old, World War II was coming to an end. The communists were driving the Germans off their soil. And the battles of philosophies that have been going on in Yugoslavia were evident to Phil's family. Now his father and the adult men were gone. They had been conscripted. That made Phil with his grandmother and the other women of the house the oldest adult male. 14 years old. The Germans are in retreat. And like the Ukrainians today, as they retreat on their way back to Germany, they're blowing up bridges. Phil's family believes they should try to make it to Austria. And so when the Germans come through, they sense it's time to go. The animals are left in the barn. The furniture's in the house. They have to walk away from everything. When that wagon, which is loaded down with people and the few belongings they can take, is pulled out of the driveway by a, a large horse or two, they begin their journey to one of those vast rivers where crossing the bridge will mean the difference between whether or not they're imprisoned forever under communist rule or they make it to freedom. Why this bridge was still standing is a mystery to this day. But at the head of the bridge were German soldiers. And when that wagon had crossed in almost to Germany... And they looked down and saw the bridge still intact. Their hopes were raised, but they had to engage the German soldiers at the head of the bridge. Fourteen years old. Are there any 14-year-olds here today? You're the man of the moment. One of the ladies prompts young Phil to go down in October, or maybe it was the spring, actually, of 1944, and talk to the German soldier. Big, strong, war-weary soldier. The soldier gave Phil a task that I imagine he didn't suspect he would be able to fulfill. He went back to the wagon, probably talked it over with his family, and then he had the monumental task of trying to find and accumulate the right paperwork to cross the bridge. He achieved what the soldier probably didn't expect him to be able to do. And whether it was that day or the next, I don't know, then he took the wagon and he started leading it down to the bridge. Upon approaching the bridge, the wagon pauses, he goes up, he speaks with the soldiers, he takes care of the things he needs to take care of, 
Perhaps much to his surprise, but truly to the relief of all of those in the wagon, he comes back to the wagon, and again he starts to lead the wagon across the bridge, this time with permission. And as he crosses the plain where that war-hardened soldier was standing, probably somebody's dad, probably. That soldier takes that soiled uniform and that strong arm and he snaps it to a salute to this 14-year-old boy. He's a refugee. He's the only man in the group. And why at the end of his life are these the things he's talking about? Because in that moment, in that terribly difficult rite of passage, he's going from being a boy to being a man. We have no rites of passage. You can stay a boy as long as you want. As a matter of fact, there may be some big boys listening to me here today. They don't know what moral obligation is. They don't know what duty is. They live for themselves. And if they bury themselves in the basement and play video games half the night, who's to care? And if they spend all their money on selfish indulgence and convenience and acts of pleasure, well, God's cause goes to want. Who's the challenge? Or they binge on the immoral, swiping with their thumb or their forefinger, seeing things not fit for man nor boy nor woman to see. As I visited with him before his death and listened into these stories, I had to stand in awe in one who had been schooled in the truly hard-knock university and had come out the other side. Few people were more committed to this church than Phil Reese. As an aside, when he finally went back to Germany in the post-war years, everything was in ruins. It took two and a half decades or more to rebuild that war-torn country. He had to learn the trade of masonry. I was talking with his son last night on the phone. It took him two years to save enough money to buy a bicycle. He came here to this country, and within six months, he was driving a Buick. It's a great land, friends. But he also noticed some young Adventist girls. Now, he was an Adventist. Three Adventist girls working on a farm in Bridgman. Once he found out they were Adventists, well, the deal was just a little bit sour tasting. Until one of the older women, I don't know if his mother or grandmother, maybe one of those women riding the wagon where they crossed the bridge, spoke up and said, well, you know they're right. He looked at her, I'm sure. She looked at him. You see, years before, a call porter had sold them a book that as a boy, Phil had looked at. It had all these strange beasts in it. It was called The Great Controversy. Well, now Phil had another problem. One side of the family was urging him that maybe he ought to get to know one of those girls. But his dad said, look, we owe too many people too much money, and I can't take Saturday off. But you know what? For the next three Saturdays, it was raining too hard to lay block. So his dad came to church, and not long after that, his dad came to a greater truth. 
Every Saturday evening, as they finished up their vespers, they would sing a song. It's the same one we're about to sing. Take that paper out of your bulletins, would you? I'd like to look at those words. How is it that someone who came out of so much trauma would put his arms so tightly around a song like this? Let our hearts be always cheerful. Why should murmuring enter there? When our kind and loving Father makes us children of his care. Now, I want you to notice the chorus especially. <laughs> always cheerful, always cheerful, sunshine all around we see. Full of beauty is the path of duty. And then skip down to the third verse if we could. When we turn aside from duty comes the pain of doing wrong and a shadow creeping over us checks the rapture of our song. Now listen. Some people would like to relegate these kind of songs to the, the, the self-help uh, personal religious liturgy of those who can't grapple with the truth. Of course we know that everybody's not cheerful exactly all the time, but isn't it strange that a man, a boy, becoming a man, leading his family out of the war-torn savageries of, of one oppressive power and then another, isn't it strange that such deep commitment should reside in his heart? And isn't it strange that a childlike simplicity would remain there with devotion to Christ and his church? Listen, friends, this is the one object of God's supreme regard, and feeble and defective as it may be. You think the church of God is not a, ne has, has ever had a period of time where there weren't warts and pimples? You want to be really happy? Fulfill your duty to your fellow man. You want to be really happy? Fulfill your duty to God's church. You want to be really happy? Say no to the invites of convenience and opportunity your good education affords you and your sizable bank account and devote yourself to the cause of Christ. He's coming soon. The reverse polarity is going to get reversed again. The church shouldn't be weak. It should be strong. We should be together praying with and for each other. The cause of Christ should have our best. God's honor should be our honor. This is not an age in which we are to abandon the faith of our fathers and the devotion of our mothers. You raise a child and you don't teach him how to bear some burdens and teach him duty, that's obscene parenting. And you live a life like that, that's obscene living. The world says it's okay, but the world's wrong. It's time for God's people to come back to the fact that in spite of the fact that the world's compass is broken, God's Spirit is completely alive. The Holy Spirit speaks true north. And I tell you, there have been times, there's my broken compass. I got invited to speak for the Stevensville camp out once when I was a pastor back in Cicero. Someone who listens to this message will appreciate this. They're not here. But I got invited to speak out in California at the Maranatha Convention not long afterwards. <laughs> Michigan, California. Michigan, California. Oh, how I wanted to get on the phone and call the pastor and say, you know what, I don't think this is going to work out. 
but I couldn't. Little things. Any real sacrifice? How about when I'm convicted that something's wrong in society or wrong at my employer? Is there a Holy Spirit who still speaks duty? Are you going to sit in silence? Are you going to be a do-nothing? Next week will be even tougher because we're going to talk about standing for the right though the heavens fall. In the meantime, I think we should be cheerful and do our duty. Sunshine all around I see, full of beauty is the path. Let's stand together and sing our song.